What's going on, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of the Up Before You podcast with me, Connor Warman. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Bangarang. Bangarang is an instant protein pudding cake. Simply pop the top on the convenient and ready-to-go container, add your preferred liquid, and mix until you get a better-for-you pudding snack. Anybody who knows me knows I love my cold oats in the morning, and Bangarang has been a nutritious and delicious addition to the mix. Head to www.bangarangfoods.com and use the discount code UBY2019 for 15% off your first order. I want to take a moment to thank you all for taking the time out of your busy lives to listen to this show. Whether it's your first time or your 60th time listening, thank you for tuning in. If you like the show, please share it with family and friends. And, as always, if you don't like the show, please share with me. If you have a moment, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave a 5-star rating, write a review, and hit that subscribe button. Lastly, go check out my website, upbeforeyou.com, and follow us on Instagram and Facebook to keep up to date with all the latest news surrounding the show. My guest today is Dr. Art Fessler. Art is a former collegiate basketball and track athlete who played at Hope College in Judson. After college, he decided to get an education and landed his first job as a biology teacher. Now, he is a superintendent for District 59 in Elk Grove. Art was my middle school principal at Prairie and Barrington, so I thought it was super cool to be able to talk to him on the podcast. We also take a dive into his competitive cycling career and what got him into that after his basketball career was over. So, without further ado, let's get on with the show. What's going on, man? Not much, Connor. Great to see you. It's been yeah. a while. It's great to see you. See, I was very excited for this because I was thinking, you were my middle school principal, so I was thinking at some point in time, I was probably sitting in your office talking to you. Now the role's reversed. Right. We've You're come, talking to me. We've come full circle. So that was interesting to me, so I'm excited for this. So I got an interesting question to start for you. If a rhino and a hippo fought, who would win and why? I would say uh, a rhino would win because I think they have a, a little more uh, armor up front. So yeah. A little more protection. Yeah, hippos are surprisingly vicious. That's what I've heard. Yeah. But those are two big animals going at it, so I don't know. It'd be interesting to see. I'd probably pay to watch that. Yeah. There'd probably be some animal cruelty laws and stuff involved there, but it'd be a good Yeah. Fight. <laughs> I'd prefer to see a couple of sharks go at it, but yeah. That'd, yeah. Be a, that'd be a good battle. Yeah. That'd be cool, so... All right, can you tell me about yourself growing up in your childhood? <clears throat> sure. Um, so I'm originally from Michigan. So, um, you know, one of one of two. I have a, a brother that's 11 months older than I am. So, um, you know, started out uh, living on the south side of Chicago uh, during a time, you know, in the 70s that was uh, pretty interesting in, in terms of, you know, this, uh, you know, going to school, integration, segregation, all that stuff was like in the forefront. So it was... Um, really quite interesting, you know, growing up, experiencing that, you know, p- literally every day on the playground, it was just craziness, you know, kids going at it. Really? Oh, yeah, it was it was pretty interesting. It was a, a real survival kind of piece. Uh, my dad was an engineer for the uh, state highway department, so anytime they built a new highway in Michigan, we were moving. So as a kid, I moved around quite a bit. Um, you know, wasn't really into to sports that much until I moved to this small town called Pentwater, um, and it was a big basketball town and, you know, we, every, every Friday night, 
everyone in the town would pack the gym. So I was watching this, and I was very impressionable, a little bit OCD as well. Yeah. So, man, I knew that I wanted to be on that floor um, playing basketball every Friday night in front of our town. So that kind of became my focus. So, um, you know, turned into a, to a gym rat. You know, it's one of those guys that would, you know, play two or three hours a day. We also, so the town I grew up in, uh, Pentwater, is right on Lake Michigan. So an awesome, awesome childhood that, you know, go to the beach in the morning, hang out there, go play basketball for a few hours, you know, then go back downtown, have a milkshake walked down to the beach and you know that was kind of life growing up so um you know this interesting thing about you know <clears throat> you know these two worlds so as you know i'm a superintendent of schools now i was a former biology teacher um you're a principal at some point and you know to your credit i don't actually ever remember you being in my office but <laughs> i probably wasn't you got a classic name man war man so <laughs> you know when, when we connected i'm like i remember that last name although you don't look anything like you probably did when yeah. you were 13 but um Ironically, you know, as I think about my the best lessons I ever had in life, they're all through athletics, and um, it really has has kind of molded who I am as a superintendent and how you know my school district does education now, and that we really pushed back against just sitting and getting, and really tried to go to application based type learning and and teaching kids some skills and then asking them to do some things with them, because because let's face it, retention is a very important part of learning, and most of us have probably forgotten much of what we got in the classroom in terms of content and sit and get and so forth. So, you know, my best lessons, I think that shaped me, you know, as a person, as a leader, as a father, were lessons that I learned on the playground, lessons that I learned uh, in basketball and camps and, and really through team sports. So that has kind of defined me, you know, when I was a teacher, I really tried to use that coaching mentality to build up confidence in kids um, you know, really believed in, if you put your mind to this, and, and you and you believe and you exert some effort, you know you can do well at this. Doesn't mean you'll be the best, um, but you can you can be very good at a lot of different things. Yeah. So that kind of shaped me, shaped who I am, and uh, has kind of brought me to this space today. Where you know more than ever, you know I think you know we're doing a disservice to kids if we don't continue to teach them to be really self-directed learners at whatever they want to do. So mm-hmm. you know if we can can cultivate a little bit of interest, you know build some curiosity. I think that gives uh, people a chance to get passionate and really pursue things. So. Yeah. So going back to basketball, <clears throat> what position did you play in basketball? So I played, um, you know, point guard and off guard. So okay. you know, I was kind of a natural scorer, like Steph Curry, kind of. You know, I was a take it to the basket. I mean, I could shoot yeah. well, but I was, um, you know, when I was a kid, for whatever reason, someone gave me a pair of dribble blinders. So there's these things you put on your head, so you can't look down at the basketball. So I wore these things religiously. So kind of, I mean, I just, and I practiced really hard, but, you know, the latent effect is that I became this amazing ball handler, because um, I was never looking at the ball, I was always looking up, so, um, you know, it was bittersweet, because I could get wherever I wanted to on the floor, so I could beat my guy off the dribble, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and like Seth Curry does, he just freezes people, I'm no Seth Curry, but I, I had kind of a, a little in and out hesitation, and I was a little quicker than most so I could get to the basket every time. So the downside as a point guard is that I could score every time. I never ran the offense. Yeah. So they moved me to uh, off guard, um, and that worked out pretty. That worked out pretty yeah. good. So you sounded like more of a Kyrie Irving <clears throat> character. I was a shot maker. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my my junior year, you know, I had great statistics. I averaged like uh, twenty one points and eleven assists a game in, in high, high school, school. That's pretty legit. Isn't yeah. It? And then and my senior year, when I moved to the off guard, I averaged a lot more points, not quite as many assists. So. Mm-hmm. So did you go on to play in college? 
I played small college basketball. I played my. Uh, I went to Hope College in Holland okay. for a year and a half, and um, you know, ironically, I was being recruited by a guy out west, um, and he came to this small college called Judson University in Elgin. Mm-hmm. So um, when I decided to go into teaching, you know, I recognized that you know, going to Division three school, um, you know, they don't give athletic scholarships. You know, I didn't want to rack up a lot of college debt, so I reached out to this person who um, I had a couple of other connections to and asked him if I could come down there if he would pay for my schooling. Now, the story about Hope is that my high school basketball coach, who was an amazing dude and a great influence in my life, really, you know, kind of took me under his wing and, and taught me what it mean, taught me what it meant to be a, uh, have some humility, you know, so... You know, as a young kid in a town where everyone really supports basketball and, you know, if you're the best basketball player, you get a lot more support. Um, humility wasn't th- something that came naturally. So you know, this guy, um, my junior year, came from Hope College as a first-year coach and coached our team and really taught me some lessons in life that I needed to learn that was really helpful. So I chose Hope because of him. And I'd been recruited to a lot of the MAC schools and a, a number of Division II schools. Um and just wasn't thinking of the financial ramifications at the time. I really wanted to, to please my high school coach. So I went to his college. Um, and I have no regrets um, because, you know, it worked out well. And now I'm down in, in Illinois and um, have had some great opportunities. So what was the transition like from the high school game to the college <clears throat> game for you? It was very different. Um, and, you know, I wish I would have done a little more research in that because, you know, I played the style of, of basketball in high school where everything was fast break. So on a made basket, missed basket, we ran a sideline fast break. We had three or four different plays just to get the ball up and attack. So as a high school team, you know, we averaged in the high 70s point-wise. The coolest thing in the world, though, is that I had a, a brother who was 11 months older than me yeah. who was a pretty amazing basketball player. So we were in the same grade level. Um, so everything was like the Fessler brothers. So... Um, you know, he was an all-state player. I, I was an all-state player. So to have two brothers yeah. on the same team, same grade, it was really pretty incredible. So we we enjoyed that bond. Um, but the college game, so when I went to Hope, they were a slow-down, controlled-type style. That was not my style. So um, I really struggled with that transition. When I left Hope and went to Judson, we were a fast, we were a fast break. I mean, we mm-hmm. had, you know, the leading, the leading rebounder in the country and the leading assist guy in the country – and I played the off guard, and we would just, it was just like high school. So we would just, you know, move the ball up the court and, uh, you know, score as fast as you could, kind of the Loyola Marymount approach. Yeah. Who, what player did you envy the most growing up? Um, when I f- first started getting into basketball in the, in the mid to late 70s, it was Dr. J. Okay. Yeah. What about, um, like, obviously Michael Jordan then, eventually, right? Well, I was a Pistons fan. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, and that was the, so, you know, I grew up in the 80s and, and 90s in terms the of. Bad the, boys, the, right? So, I would, that whole bad boy era. So, you know, I was, that was the Dennis Rodman and the Pistons before yeah. Rodman became a Bulls fan. So, for me, it was like perfect. I moved to, to um, Chicago in 1985. So, the Bears. Literally, yeah. I moved in January. The Bears were winning the Super Bowl, you know, so that was kind of cool. Um, and we had this great battle between the Bulls and the Pistons that was, you know, like six or seven years just going back and forth at it. And it really worked out well because, you know, when the Pistons, uh, so when I first moved to Illinois, I completely supported the Pistons and the Bad Boys. Just, mm-hmm. I just loved how they just played hard. They did whatever it yeah, know, would take to win. Time. But then at the end of the era, when they started kind of, you know, behaving in a manner that I thought was really unprofessional and appropriate, it was easy for me to transition. And it worked out well because then the Bulls went on a, raw, a long yeah, tear yeah, of championships. Yeah. So 
I benefited from that nicely. So when did you decide that you wanted to get into education? So when I was at Hope College, my second year there, um, I took a, a, a exceptional child course, which works with special needs kids. And that was it, man. I'm like, wow, this is something I could really um, do and like. Uh, I didn't end up going into teaching special education, but that was the experience, just working with kids, helping kids, and kind of seeing that uh, that enjoyment um, in, in their eyes, um, you know, their commitment to the relationship. It was I mean, that was the point. So yeah. there's also the point when I decided to leave Hope mm. and go to Judson. Now, did you want to be a teacher or did you have this vision of being like what you are today, like a superintendent? I wanted to be uh, a coach. Okay. So <clears throat> I never thought about administration. So okay. it wasn't until, you know, the coaching piece just didn't turn out to be as glamorous as I thought it would be. You're know? a high school so, coach? Yeah, I coached at Dundee Crown High School for four years and, okay. and really, you know, enjoyed that. But I quickly realized that, um, you know, the life of a coach is a tough and challenging lifestyle. And it's it's a commitment. And, you know, I coached freshman, sophomore, and varsity level. And, you know, it it's a lot of time, a lot of commitment. And that's something that I think it, it really is, um, you know, a life decision that if you're going to be a coach and go all in, there's a lot of sacrifice, you know, whether it's, you know, out recruiting or out scouting, you know, whatever the level you're at, it's just, it's a huge commitment. And at some point, I think I recognize that in the long run, there's, there's no way that I can make that commitment. You know, I want to start a family at some point. And, um, so yeah, I, I moved away from that. And then, um, at some point sort of pursuing some other options. <clears throat> so I got a master's in like curriculum instruction, wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but at some point through, you know, when I was ex- expanding my education experiences, I started to recognize that, you know, there are some things in education that are happening that I don't really support. And, um, you know, as a classroom teacher, when kids would sit in my class and say, why are we doing this? You know, I, I don't, when will I ever um, use this particular part of learning? So I taught biology and, and my favorite part was cell biology. And although kids enjoyed it, they didn't love it, you know, and we were doing, you know, mitosis and meiosis. They're like, you know, when are we ever going to use this? And it was hard to have an answer for that, you know, and I try to craft something. But in the end, I'm thinking the same thing. You know, once kids get out of you know high school and college and start their careers, you know, if they're not if they're not if they're not pursuing um, some type of a degree that really uses biology as a foundation, um, you know, how meaningful is that to these kids? And, and you know, can we spend our time designing education to be, you know, a little bit more effective? Okay, so you were a biology <clears throat> teacher first, and then when did you kind of decide you wanted to move into more of like the administration role? So the backstory in that is when I was in college, um, I started a painting business. So okay. I was like a small paint contractor, yeah. and, and um, you know, I got lucky and got a bunch of guys working for me and, and was able to land a bunch of jobs. So it's like cool. <clears throat> it's awesome. Was, it was pretty cool. Yeah. You know, it's pretty cool to have some money when you're in college. Yeah. Especially when you play a, a college sport. So I ran track in college and I played basketball. Okay. Um, there's what no a, other time. What track events did you do? So I ran track at Hope College. I ran the uh, the 110 high hurdles. Um, did a little bit of long jump, and then when um, so from from high school to college, the hurdle is three inches higher. Yeah. So you know, in in, in spring in, in early spring when we're doing indoor you know I was catching my back ankle I couldn't quite get over I'm not quite tall enough to run the 39 so I actually switched to the 400 which surprised me I never knew that I had that kind of race in me so 
I'd run, you know, 49 was my was my best um, time, but I ran the four and the uh, four by four, and continued to do the long jump. I was probably about the, you know, if there was a if there, if we were in a, at a meet where there's a relay, I was about the fourth best guy to get on the relay team. But otherwise, <laughs> these guys were going like 25. You know, yeah, I, was, yeah. I could get about 23, 23 and a half. So yeah. couldn't quite get it. The painting business. That's where you were at. So um, yes, thank you. So. <laughs> Yeah, I got lucky and started this painting company, and, I, and actually the whole time I was coaching, teaching, I was also running this small painting company, but um, began it my junior year in college and ran it for about 12 years. I think through some of those leadership experiences, I recognized that you know, I can come up with a good plan. So you know, if I would look at a job, I could say, okay, this is going to take my crew three or four days. I could bid it pretty quick and um, really started to... to apply that to what we were doing and teaching and learning. And I, and I thought, you know what, this could be good in administration in terms of identifying some gaps, setting some goals, developing a plan, bringing some people in and getting stuff done. So, you know, those, those things kind of converged. And then I recognized that if I was going to start a, a family that um, it'd probably be important as well that, that I, I get into a role where I had some level of flexibility. Yeah. So what was your first administration job? So... <clears throat> My first full-time administration job, I was assistant principal at uh, Station Campus okay. in Barrington. So yeah. I did that for two years. Um, then I was asked to move to Lyons Elementary to be the principal, which was an interesting story because I really want, I loved Station, man. That was an awesome, awesome mm -hmm. job. Great people, great teachers. I've always loved the families in Barrington. I thought that the, the parents and the kids were just amazing. Um, but the superintendent asked me to take the elementary job, and you know, I mentioned to her that I like to just stay at station until Dr. Voris was the principal at the time until he retired. And she said, "Well, you know, you may not get that job in two years. You know, I want you to take this job." So I did that for two years, and then went to Prairie. Yeah, and was there for about eight years. Oh, you were there for eight years. Mm -hmm. Wow. Now, so when you get into a school district, do they move, do they try to move you around a lot? Every school difference. Every school district is different. So as a superintendent. You know, I don't, I don't make a move unless I see a value add. So I don't move people to move people. But I do think that, you know, in life, uh, in, any, in any job, you know, if you, the first time you do it, the first two or three years, you're kind of cutting your teeth, you're learning, you're trying to become an expert. So when you get that next first start, I mean, you can take what you've learned and really apply it in a way that's different because people don't have these uh, preconceived or these notions of who you are, how you lead, and what you do. So, like, when I took my first superintendent's job, you know, year one, got to know everyone, and then year two, you know, of the like the, like we had 40-some administrators in District 59, really tried to find uh, positions and jobs that, you know, suited um, the skill set of the person, but also supported the work that we were doing in the school district. So I think, I think moves are healthy as long as there's a value add. I think, you know, moving too frequently can have negative impact, though, so... Now, you've worked in a handful of districts at this point, so do you know, have you noticed as you move from district to district, you have to change your styles or kind of the way you do things based on the demographic and the people that are in the district at all? Does well, that change? It's different work. There's no doubt about it. I mean, going, you know, so I worked, I was a teacher in District 300 for seven years, and then going to Barrington, you know, that's a, that's a very different school district than District 300. But as you know, we had our challenges. Um, you know, some of the minority students um, that came in at middle school, that was a different experience for all of the students. So navigating that was a challenge. You know, working in District 69, or 59, we have um, a pretty significant um, number of, of families who live in poverty, you know, so their needs are very different. And I think it's challenging to go in with 
this plan that this is what you're going to do until you really understand the community, the district, the people that you're working in. So I think it's very important to go in and to try to build a little bit of understanding, um, ask some questions. I don't know if you read Stephen Covey, but, you know, seeking to understand versus just coming in and, and barking out orders is a lot better of approach. Um, so going into to District 59, um, I definitely had a lot of things that I wanted to do with modern learning. So I wanted to make this shift from not getting rid of traditional, but instead of just, you know, teachers standing in front of kids for 45 minutes and then giving them five minutes at the end of the period to do some work, wanted to make a shift to you know, what's involved kids and, and make them take ownership in learning, you know, so that they develop this skill and eventually hopefully become this lifelong learner where if they see something they're going to, you know, explore it, go after it, and teach themselves. Mm-hmm. And particularly in this job market where it's, it's, you know, this is an emerging job market that really is it's kind of unpredictable. And you don't know, you know, what the next career is going to be two or three or four years from now or the next, you know, um, big opportunity. So, again, more than ever, we want kids to be able to be self-directed learners. So if they see something, whether it's, you know, coding or building electric cars, whatever that might be, that they can... Say, hey, I can do this. So um, I had some things in mind that I wanted to do, but I also uh, recognized that I needed to learn some things. And I just learned a lot about, you know, if, if kids aren't ready to learn, you know, if they're not coming with the mental um, skills or the mental health that they need, it's going to be hard to do anything ap- academic. So we've really invested a lot of time and energy to try to make sure that we look at the whole child. Because that was my big learning curve, I think, in District 59. Very different than when I was in Barrington because, man, those kids, they're coming to school and they're doing very, very well. In fact, as you know, you know the big challenge is, is, is that Barrington had this accelerated curriculum by a couple of years. So mm-hmm. kids who were average or slightly above average, you know, were having to work really, really hard yeah. to keep up. So Now, you kind of touched on this the whole time, but... A little bit here and there, but like, what's wrong? What do you think is wrong with the current education <clears throat> system? And then, how do we even begin to start to fix it? Well, you know, that's an interesting and provocative question because I don't know that there's anything you know wrong. I think, I think the big challenge is that you know what we've done, what we know for so long. So status quo. You know, how do you change the status quo? I think what's the most, in my opinion, the most significant issue that we have is some of the assessments that we use to describe successful schools. So like some of the standardized tests, you know, I struggle with the notion that, you know, they're, they're chronologically based versus growth based, you know. So if you've got a kid who's, you know, one or two years behind their grade level and they're taking a test that they, they can't read and then the whole school is, is judged on that or they're judged on that, it doesn't give you a lot of information. So we've set up the system through some of the, like, no child left behind or the race to the top, some of these legislations where instead of really um, allowing kids to pursue learning, you know, they're, they're pursuing a test score or pursuing a grade. I think that's the big mindset that I think we need to make, that the joy has to become in the experience of learning, not in the experience of getting a grade because that goes away pretty quick. And in the end, you know, if you take a test and then six months later you don't remember anything from that test, what have you really gained? Yeah. Versus if we can teach a kid a skill on how to build or make or apply that, I mean, that's something they can take with them the rest of their life. So I think um, I think in the United States, we are still killing it in education. You know, I think um, we have awesome and amazing teachers that, you know, really give their lifeblood to help support kids to make them successful. And I think that's pretty amazing. Um, 
I just think we're caught up in this competitive assessment piece where we want to, you know, compete with other countries that, you know, they're playing a different game, you know, where not all their kids take the test or, um, like for example, ACT, I I read a study where, um, you know, there've been 9 million kids who have taken ACT. You can predict a student score by parent income in $10,000 bands. So if you're, if your parents make this much money, it's a straight line correlation on 9 million test scores with ACT that tie that to parent income. So, you know, when you look at some of these countries that have 1% or 2% or 3% or even 10% poverty in their country, and you compare, compare it to the United States, who has 50%, and all our kids are taking this test, it really is apples to oranges. So, like, if you, um, there's a gentleman out of Illinois State, I don't recall, or not Illinois State, but Arizona State, who's done a study on this, and when you disaggregate, just our students in America in the, who are in the top 10% poverty, we can, we're like number one and number two in, in any category on any, of the, on any of the global assessments that are given, but that's not the way we look at it. So to answer your question, though, we get caught up in trying to get you know, all of our kids to compete with kids that um, they just don't have the experience or the support at young ages to make it a fair comparison. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's like me trying to play basketball against Michael Jordan. It doesn't matter how much I practice. I mean, he is 6'6", his vertical is bigger. There's just no way I can compete with that, even if I practiced more than he did. Yeah, wow, that's that's pretty amazing, actually. So then, basically what you think is we need, like, kids need more, like, hands-on learning and, like, teaching them more to think critically and think outside the box? So so I would ask you to think about your experience in education. I mean... What are the things that you remember most about what you did in school? What are those sticky moments that you've never forgotten? Just sitting in the classroom and listening and being bored out of my mind. Right. And what are, so what are those meaningful learning events that you took with you? I mean, what, what was it that you did that you liked? Was there anything in particular? I liked history. So, like, for me, it was, for me it was dissection. Okay. So, so um, it was doing something. But, like, you know, of the 10,000 worksheets that I've done... I couldn't tell you what any of them were except those times tests we used to take in elementary school where you have 100 problems in a minute to do yeah. them. Do you remember that? Uh-huh. It's the only worksheet I really kind of remember. And, you know, for some kids that was very stressful and they were anxious, anxious with those. You know, I'm a competitive person so I, and I like math, so I loved those things. But, you know, I think about the most meaningful learning experiences. It was when we had debate. So in, in yeah, so so in history when we would did when we would do current events I remember that stuff but when we would just sit and get and lecture I really couldn't tell you I mean I can't even remember a lesson to be honest with you from <clears throat> from uh, high school or middle school but I'm you know 53 years old so that was a long time ago for me <laughs> um, but but having said that though the things that I still remember to this day are typically you know things where I had to apply what I knew, you know, build something, make something, dissect something, something that involved my skill and application. Most of the memorization stuff, you know, other than, you know, math facts and things like that, which I use on a regular basis. If you don't use it, I, I believe you lose it. So, so yeah, to, to answer your question, I do agree that we want to teach kids skills, whether it's communication, written, what have you, and then teach them how to use them in a meaningful way so they'll take them with them or hopefully maybe get interested or passionate and get really good at it. So then what type of role do you think government should play in education? You know, I think there has to be accountability. And, I, and you know, as much as, as much as I'm challenged by the, 
you have the assessment model that we have in place. I mean, a lot of smart people in government, a lot of smart people in education, um, for a lot of years have tried to find something um, better. And the fact that we haven't, um, you know, that's telling. So, you know, I, I do think that the government, especially the federal government, um, you know, I think they have some role in trying to make sure that we have equal access in all of our states. So I think there's an equity piece that, that they need to address. You know, at the state and local, especially the state level, I know that they have to, for much of the funding that comes from the federal government, which isn't a lot, maybe maybe 10% of, our, of the funding for education in Illinois comes from federal gover- government, maybe a little more, so it's not a significant part amount, but, I mean, 10% for many school districts, that's a, that's a lot of money. Um, <clears throat> so I think the state piece, uh, you know, we just, we just elected or... Um, appointed a new state superintendent with the new governor. Um, You know, I've met with her a couple of times and, um, you know, she's a former superintendent, so I think she has good perspective. But, you know, we've, a group group of superintendents and some other folks from some state associations have been trying to work with her and the state board to just talk about some of these um, issues. So ESSA is now the new legislation for education. It was passed several years ago. And each state has to develop an ESSA plan for the federal government that um, again, if the, if the plan's approved, then they get their federal dollars. And with that, we have a lot more flexibility in terms of how we assess. I mean, there, there are even some, some language in there that allows um, states to pilot. Um, <clears throat> you know, what I've learned is that it's a big ship. You know, it doesn't matter what state it is. It's a big ship. So even if, even if there are things that we want to do to make a change that impacts all the school districts, you know, there are like 850 school districts in Illinois, that's a heavy lift. So, you know, even when we're all on the same page and want to do some things, it's hard to make change. So I think that the state needs to continue to to collaborate with the people in the trenches. So local school districts, you know, local leaders, um, and just identify, you know, the gaps, um, you know, talk strategies to address, you know, some of the issues that we're having, and then work together. Um, Because if all the, if the districts aren't working in it, you know, and, and the school districts don't have ownership, even if there is a change, it's not going to be a good change. It's just like any plan. You know, if you work, like in my school district, you know, if if I just tell them that they have teachers that they've got to do this or leaders that they've got to do this, they struggle with that, you know, because, you know, I believe that people don't mind change. They don't like to be changed. And there's a subtle but important difference. So, you know, if you with people, build an understanding, um, just agree that you know, have some common agreements, then I think you can come to some things. And I think there are the pieces that we need to do with the state and the state has to facilitate that. But again, when you have 850 school districts, yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a heavy, it's a heavy lift. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's a lot. Um, so what do you think is the most fulfilling part of your job? <clears throat> I'll tell you that being a, being a superintendent is, is challenging in, in, in the Chicago suburbs. I mean, there's a lot of very high expectations. There's, um, you know, like I work in a school district that we have 7,000 kids, 15 schools were you know, pre-K-8 in four communities. And, um, you know, everyone's got, you know, super high expectations. And I, so there's a lot of pressure there to, to, to get all of your schools, all of your teachers, all of your kids performing. Um, but for me, the most rewarding thing uh, and, you know, I try to schedule, I try to build my schedule so I spend um, a half day every week in buildings. And, and, you know, generally I'll reach out to the principal and say, hey, can you put me in a classroom for an hour? You know, give me three classrooms in your building. I really want to see what's going on. That's the most rewarding thing to really go and watch kids 
like you know first second grade you know getting up in front of their peers um you know, presenting information, sharing information, publicly speaking, just doing things that when I was a kid, we never did any of that stuff. I mean, we sat at a desk, either in straight lines or tables, and, you know, just head down working on stuff. You know, listen to teachers, um, you know, you know, trying to practice skills, build skills. But, man, we've got our, we've got our kids right away trying to get comfortable with, you know, this whole 21st century model of learning where, you know, Kids are effectively communicating, you know, written, oral, using digital devices. You know, our school district, you know, our kids, we give them, you know, for better or for worse, we give kids, um, you know, devices um, in kindergarten. Now, they don't have them full-time in kindergarten, but first, second, third grade, our kids are starting to use what, starting, starting to use tablets, they're starting to use, you know, we use Chromebooks, it's a two-in-one device, so touch screen. So, you know, we're trying to build digital literacy at a very young age. Um, you know, there's both good and bad things mm-hmm. that result from the internet and from social media. So, you know, an important part of what we try to do is teach um, kids to be global citizens, digital citizens, and digitally responsible. And, you know, the the not to get too far off track, but you know, the the, the wave of challenges we have right now are mostly, you know, with the bullying things are are mostly in social media. You know, yeah. so we've seen such a huge shift there in the last couple of years where, you know, back in the day it was more, the confrontations were more in yeah. person, but now we see all these build up and then they, 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 they're outside the school day, but then they, they flood into the school day. So, you know, kids go home, do their homework, what have you. And if there's, uh, you know, there's an opportunity for, for, for conflict to happen, social media, there's, you know, just no doubt that that's going to come back in the school the next day. So we're trying to, at a very young age, to get our kids to be respectful of others. We do a ton of stuff with social emotional learning, understanding culture, understanding diversity, dealing with stress and anxiety. We've got you know our kids in, in first and second, third grade already talking about just strategies to use. If, you know, if you're feeling stressed or if, or if you're anxious, and um, you know, conflict resolution at very early ages. Um, same thing with with digital literacy um, and being a digital citizen at very young ages, just teaching kids to be responsible users, to be respectful, to be courteous, and mm-hmm. you know it's something that you know there are some 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 regulation from the state level, but not significant. But it will certainly be something that will be I think addressed and will increase uh, in the near future. <clears throat> for sure, for sure. So, uh, switching gears here a little bit, you mentioned this morning you went on a nice forty-five mile bike ride. How'd you get into the sport of cycling? <clears throat> So, um, yeah, I played a lot of basketball. Yep. Um, and at some point, my knee started wearing out. So I've had like seven knee surgeries. Seven all, knee surgeries? Yeah, all cartilage, um, just, you know, break bones breaking off in there, cartilage ripping, whatever. So no cartilage in my knees. So, and I've always been extremely active, you know. So in high school, I played a bunch, I played all the sports, mm-hmm. you know. And I went to a small enough high school that you could play baseball and run track in the spring. So, you know, I, I did both. That was great. But about five years ago, you know, I probably gained about 15 pounds. You know, I was superintendent in Oak Lawn. So when I left Barrington, I went to Oak Lawn to take a superintendent job. Okay. So I was driving like, you know, two hours every day. And all of a sudden, yeah, for wow. the first time in my life, I'm like, man, I'm like 15 pounds heavier. So um, a good friend of mine uh, from Barrington, uh, Ben Gray. What, what elementary school did you go to? Roslyn. Okay. So he was an elementary teacher at, at Lines. Okay. So when I left, I actually hired him as my... Director of Innovation in Oakland. So uh, he worked with me there, and um, yeah, he was telling me about how he's mountain biking and mm-hmm. how, how much fun it was. And I'm like, you know, I'm not interested. <laughs> so in 2013, he got me out on a ride, 
It meant like literally as a fish in water, you know, on the bike. And I just loved it. So I bought a mountain bike and for a couple of years was just heavily into mountain biking. And then he got me into cyclocross racing. Have you ever seen the cyclocross racing? Uh, no, I don't think so. Oh, it's awesome. So Is that like, like the Tour de France kind of thing? It's like a road bike, little little wider tires, a little smaller okay. setup. And, and you're, you're racing in parks and, you know, they set up these like um, obstacles and stuff. Uh, a few. So, okay. so the, the, the course is usually about a, a two-mile course, and you just race it for like, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, depending on what category you race. So, uh, but they do have barriers you jump over. They've got runovers, so things you get off your bike. You're carrying your bike. You're oh, running wow. up mud hills. Um, it's pretty grueling. It's awesome in the fall, but, you know, you race into December. So in November, December, it's just mud fest. So, I mean, it really is a mud fest. Yeah. Um, so I started doing that for a while and you know, the last couple of years we've had so much rain that I've not been able to mountain bike because the trails are closed. So last summer in July, I bought a road bike and, um, I just really got into to road biking. And the cool thing now is that, I mean, there's, there's so many, um, social networks around cycling that, so I, you know, I'm on Strava and there's a, there's a competitive piece there where you set up segments and you race against others and oh, yeah. it's pretty cool. And then this morning, um, you know, I, I went uh, on a group ride with uh, truck, or not truck, but um, with Lifetime. So, so we rode, yeah, 45, 45 miles. So it's like cycling is my new um, kind of passion, helps me to deal with the stress and anxiety. And um, I try to ride, you know, four or five times a week and about 150 miles a week. So not like super fanatical, but enough to get me in pretty good, pretty good condition. So how long does 45 miles take on a bike? So, so... Um, Usually, so like a little over two hours. So we ride about 20 miles an hour. So, and, and um, you know, it depends on your level of fitness. So like most rides have like ABC rides. So, you know, over the course of the ride, you know, depending on how you're feeling, you know, you're in either the, one of those groups. And so, yeah, usually a couple of hours. Yeah. So what's the longest ride you've ever done? Well, since I've started cycling, nothing really crazy. So Wisconsin and back, 65 miles. When I was a kid... You know, for a couple of years, you know, I connected with this church group, and, and we did some long-distance rides. So we rode from, like, Maine to Michigan and Colorado to Michigan. Um, so we'd ride, you know, 80 to 100 miles a day. But, you know, I took about a 35-year break from cycling and played a lot of basketball and other sports. <clears throat> so I um, hadn't ridden in quite a while. This year I'm going to ride the Ragbri out in Iowa. So that's the... Uh, 10,000 people riding across the state. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that's like 500 miles, so like 80, they, yeah. they do 80 to 100 miles a that's day. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So what's the draw to like cycling? Doesn't it, does it ever get boring? So that's that's what I was thinking, 100%. So, you know, like three years ago when, when my friends were starting to road ride, I'm like, I will never road ride. That's got to be the most boring thing. You just, yeah. you just, you go straight the whole time. Um, and I was heavily into mountain biking at the time. I probably had four different bikes, you know, hardtail, softtail, fat tire, um, so, and, and, you know, the racing piece is also a lot of fun. So, uh, did a little bit of racing on the mountain bike. I do a lot of racing on the, on the cross bike. So some of it is fitness, but, <clears throat> um, there is a, this, this competitive piece. So like for me, I set personal goals every time I ride. So depending on, um, you know, if, if I, if I want to really hammer it, you know, I try to ride 21, 22 miles an hour for however long I'm riding, whether it's 20, 30 or 40 miles and just really hammer it. So, um, it, you know, you're watching your computer, you're watching your heart rate. So there's a lot of things going on. The other piece though, is, is what I've learned. Um, you can meet some really cool people cycling and uh, have some great conversations. 
um, learn learn some things you didn't know, and uh, you know develop some relationships with some folks that you would otherwise probably never run into. So that's pretty cool. I think there's an also another piece where you're just finishing something together. You know, it is a good feeling um, when we go down some of our harder rides. So if, you know, we go out to Marengo or, or or out west and get into the hills a little bit, or even into Barrington Hills for really hammering it in there, just kind of pushing each other to, to you know, do your best to, mm-hmm. to max out your ride. When people are getting tired, a little encouragement. So there's this camaraderie that you build kind of like in a team sport. That's pretty good. And, again, I think in the aftermath you build this bond. So even like after today, you know, we <clears throat> knocked out 45 minutes this morning, and then, um, you know, one of the guys says, hey, you want to go grab breakfast, you know, afterwards, so just to go over and talk a little bit about, um, you know, what's happening in people's lives. But then, of course, we start looking at our stats. You know, what was your heart rate? What was your max rate? Yeah. Start going through those things, and there's always a little competitive nature. At least in my conversations, I'm like hyper competitive. Even in my fifties, oh. it's yeah. <laughs> so, is it something you like? You can do for until you're old, like real old. Well, I think I'm real old now. So, <laughs> I mean, like, um, can, like, can you ride when you're like seventy five? Yeah, I was riding with this guy today. who was uh, sixty six, and he was just hammering it, man. I was like, man, this guy's a strong, strong rider. So. Yeah, I think and it's interesting. Like, so I race cyclocross, and it's not based on age group; it's based on your times. So, yeah. um, you know, how you time, how you place, can put you in these in, in a different category. So, it's USA Cycling. You've got to be a licensed uh, cyclist to participate, and then Chicago runs a, a series it's called the Chicago Cup Series. So, each bike shop in the area, um, you know, throughout Chicago and even out in the western suburbs, will set up set up this ten race series. And then we have the state championship at Montrose Harbor. Um, in Chicago. So, you know, some of the guys that I raced in, you know, like the first time I got a podium, the first and second place winners were um, 16 and 17. The one was the national junior champion, yeah. one was the runner-up. There was this little kid from Prairie this year in eighth grade. I kid you not that, um, you know, at the start of the season, our first race was in DeKalb. I think he finished in the top 20. By the end of the season, he was battling top five in every race. Eighth, eighth grade. That's insane. You know, and, and again, in the category that I was riding, you have kids who are juniors all the way, you know, kids, people in their 20s, 30s, 40s. You have a lot of serious riders. And the crazy thing about a cross race is that, you know, at the start, it's about 20 feet wide. You have 125 people lined up, you know, eight rows across, about, you know, 20 rows back. And when they blow the whistle, it's it's just it's crazy. crazy. Yeah. Did, did you ever get in any crashes or anything? You know, I, I think because I did so much mountain biking beforehand that, that I'm fortunate that I have pretty good handling skills. So um, very few. Like in the three years that I've done it, I think I've maybe been in maybe one or two. And it's largely when people fall in front of me. And I'm right, I'm right on their wheel, so I can't get around them. But you know, the the good thing is that I've kind of worked my way up to the front. So when you're in the front, um, it's a whole different race. So I mean, the, like the guys behind me, it's like you know, I, as you're going around the turns, you're seeing like 20 guys go down a turn mm-hmm. because there are too many guys going into a bottleneck, and just you yeah. know, what one guy goes down, <laughs> just takes a yeah. group with them. So yeah, I'm up there smiling a little bit, thinking, man, I'm not, I'm glad I'm not back in the mix, yeah. but. Everyone starts in the back, and you got to just work your way up, yeah. and that's based on how you place. So, yeah. so what are, what do you want to do? What are some goals for the future in cycling? Well, the interesting thing is that I'm 53, so I can never tell if I'm getting faster or slower. So after after a ride, sometimes my body feels like really weird. I'm like, is it because I'm getting older? Because I just had a hard workout. So, yeah, I'm a Cat Four rider now, and it goes goes up to Cat One, so it goes one to five. Okay. Um, 
So I'd like to try to eventually uh, get up to the Cat 3s. Um, I think the one and two guys are just out of my league, man. They're just guys who are amazing with their fitness. And, you know, genetics in any sport has, um, you know, some impact. So I think those guys are out of my league. But if I could be competitive in the, in the level three, um, that would feel pretty good. So... This year, in my in my category, in the regular series, I finished second in the state, so I was pretty, you know, proud of that. You know, I think largely because I was the only guy that ra- raced all, you know, ten races, so, <clears throat> so it's a, kind of a point series. But um, you know, looking at my times and looking at the the you know the cat four, cat threes, I kind of see that as my goal. So, you know, to try to to try to get stronger, um, I'm doing my road doing my road riding, so. I only started road riding last July and it had a huge impact in my cross season this year. So um, took a little bit of time off in like December and uh, January, but I've been hitting the trainer and now hitting the road pretty pretty hard. So I'm very curious to see what my legs will do this fall. Mm-hmm. So yeah, very cool. So last thing's a two kind of a two parter. So one, do you ever see yourself getting into politics? And two, where do you go from here in terms of education? Isn't superintendent kind of like it's the top, isn't it? I don't know if I'd call it the top, but it's, uh, yeah, it's the, <clears throat> one of the higher, it's the, the top, it's the highest job, high level, highest level on the org chart that you can get in a school district. So, um, you know, interestingly, so for the last five years, I've, I've, I'm, I'm, on the, I'm on the governing board for the uh, national superintendents. I don't know if you know Dr. Harris, who's superintendent yeah, of Barrington, okay. but uh, he also is um, on the national governing board. Actually, this year he was elected to the executive board. So each each uh, July, uh, we do some advocacy work in Washington D.C. So Brian and I and a number of other Illinois and then assistant or and then superintendents from around the country get together and try to put uh, an agenda together through our national superintendents organization and just go meet with congressmen and women cool. and just talk through the issues. Um, so to answer your question, do I have an interest in politics? Absolutely. Well, not. the reason I ask about that is because that's kind of where like the change starts. It starts at the top, right? You know, I think a lot of people would answer that question differently. Some people would say it starts with where the money's at. You know, yeah. and that there's such an influence um, with who's got the money and where the money flows. So, you know, I think with with some some smaller things, perhaps you can make some changes. I do think in education, it is an area uh, that if we could get organized um, and really get behind a solid. Um, unique message we could make some change but you know, the great thing about our country is perspective everyone has different perspective different ideas you know like like I I believe that you know the best way to teach is through this combination of traditional and modern learning so I do think that there's absolutely uh, an important element to learning to having some foundational understanding and some of that comes through a lot of direct instruction sitting and listening but at some point if you don't play the game or do something with it you're going to lose it. You know, it's, it's, you know, you, you don't just build skill sitting on the sideline. You know, you've got to get out there and apply it or you're not going to retain it. And then as you know, if you don't continue to apply it, your skills diminish. You know, it's like, it's like a second language that if you don't use the second language at some point, you're not as sharp with it. So, um, I don't just, dis- I don't disagree. I mean, I'm, I'm not a cynic by any means, but, um, I, I do recognize how hard it is to change status quo. And, um, you know, if you've had a lifetime experience of one thing and you've been very successful, you probably typically think that, well, it's because of this experience that I'm very successful. You know, I would argue in many cases that you were going to be successful regardless, despite what happened there. And I think, 
you know, I believe that in, in, in some examples of education that kids are successful regardless of what education they're going to have. I think ACT is the best example that when you can predict, you know, a kid's score based on their parent income, I think that tells you the importance of having a nurturing family, you know, family that talks to you, reads to you, tells you the importance of school, you know, versus not having that experience where you come into school thinking it's not important or that school's against you. So, um, you know, I think organizing and having a united message um, is significant in changing really the landscape of education in mm -hmm. our country. But even saying that, man, there's so many incredible teachers and leaders that, you know, if you think about that, you know, one or two teachers that you had that, you know, changed your life or did something that was so impactful to you, to you in school that you'll never forget them. I mean, most people have one or two teachers that they'll never forget because of some experience they had in their classroom or some experience of encouragement or some great advice. Um, you know, again, I think we have a lot of amazing people in education that, that just make huge, hugely positive impacts in the lives of students. Did you have a person, a teacher at some point? I was who, trying to just think of that. I have to think about it. I can't, yeah. Yeah, I can't so I can, I can remember mine. Mine was my, my, ironically, my biology teacher yeah. in high school. And I became a, not because of, I mean, at the time I wasn't saying I want to be like this guy. But, um, you know, he was my first basketball coach in fifth grade. I remember, I'll never forget him. He was 6'4". He went to Michigan State. Never played a lick of basketball in his life. You know, if we were screwing around, he'd take the basketball across the gym and just peg us with it. Yeah. And, you know, we used to always think it was pretty cool to try to catch it and stuff like that. But um, for whatever reason, um, you know, he believed in me from my freshman year. So before, before I came this pretty successful basketball player in high school, and I was this, this kid with a lot of energy who was pretty distracting in yeah. class. Mm -hmm. You know, he always was, was kind and took a liking to me. So, um, yeah, he's, you know, in hindsight, he's part of why, you know, I think I got into teaching as well. And then my high school basketball coach. Yeah. I didn't have him as a teacher in the classroom, but he was, a, you know, a, a teacher on a whole different level and a whole different other arena that 100% impacted the directory of my life. Yeah. <clears throat> That's awesome. That's awesome that you can remember that. All these years later. Yeah. I'm surprised you don't have one teacher who's... I have a just... couple college professors that I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah. But I have to, like, dig deep, think, think back to the days. Well, I mean, you were, you were a kid who was on a high success, on a highly successful pathway anyway, so yeah. you are probably pretty self-directed and didn't need <laughs> that pick-me-up. I don't know about that. <laughs> get that good-looking smile. That, <laughs> Thank you. Teachers are always... Pet, yeah, uh, this, always. This guy's all right. So, all right, all right. Well, thanks for coming out today, making the trip out here. This is awesome. Yes, yeah, pleasure, man. It was always uh, it was great. I was uh, when you made the when you made the connection between our experience together at Prairie. I'm like, I recognize that name now. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah. So, thanks for uh, having me on. Yeah, thank you. Bye. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And I hope you enjoyed episode 60 of this show. We'll see you next time on the Up Before You podcast. Have a great day.